I am thrilled today's guest, Stephen A. Smith, is a uh, has become kind of an icon in our culture. Uh, he's by by any standard the most uh, prominent sports journalist today. He's one of the most important journalists in the country today. A voice. Uh, it's got a lot to say. He's got a best-selling new book, Straight Shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. He's of course the host of First Take. He's got a, a new, relatively new podcast, No Mercy. Uh, thrilled to have you, man. I appreciate it. It's good to see you, Donnie. How you been? Good. Last time we spoke, probably about 2007 on my show on CNBC, The Big Idea. Um, I think you had your Quite Frankly show at the time. Yep. You've, it's been a long run since then. You and I have a lot in common also. You're, you're a man from uh, Hollis, Queens. I'm from Hollis Hills. You went to PS 134. I went to PS 188. Yep. an agent, Mr. John Rosen. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it's nice to chat with you. How's the book going so far? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. I just found out it's a New York Times bestseller. There you go. Uh, so, you know, so I guess I'm doing pretty well with it. I'm happy. I'm humbled. A lot of people want it. Um, it's number one on Amazon. It's top five New York Times bestsellers list. It's number four in the Wall Street Journal um, and, 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 and climbing. And um, so, I mean, it's just hard to put into words. I certainly expect to be successful. Uh, anything that I venture into, I'll put my best foot forward and I try to succeed. But nevertheless, um, still doesn't negate the fact that it's incredibly humbling to to get to a point where, you know, you just uh, touch on hollow grounds. Your New York Times bestseller doesn't get much better than that in the publishing industry. And that's what I am today. So it's kind of crazy right now. To be honest with you. Long way from a kid who got left back in the third or fourth grade. I, yeah. I got, that's kind of the essence of the book. I just want to read something you said. And, and, and this is where I want to sell the book for a second, because that's what I do. I'm a marketer. I'm a, you know, and <laughs> the book is it's not a sports book. Obviously, it touches on sports, but it's a book for anybody that's ever had to overcome any adversity. And this kind of sums it up. You say the Jay-Z's, the late great Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal's, the others of the world, they're not the American dream. I am. They're the American fantasy become reality. In other words, that's the one in a billion you'll be able to pull off that because that's how many you are. And here's the essence of the book. I am the American dream because you could be Stephen A. Smith. You could get left back in school and still graduate from college with honors. You could have a reading disability when you're younger and you still become a journalist. You can dream of being on TV one day and none of it pulling it off. So it's safe to say, this is a book for anybody that's got a dream. I believe so. Uh, that's I, I hope that anyone who has a dream would want to read a book like this. I hope it sends that kind of message that it has that kind of motivational and inspiring effect. That's what it's all about. That's what I want people to understand about it. I didn't write the book just for me, although I dedicated the title of the book to my late mother, God rest her soul, who's the most wonderful woman I've ever known, uh, who was also a, a big time straight shooter. The reality of the situation is that it, the, the purpose that you're serving is supposed to be higher than yourself. It's supposed to be something that motivates and inspires others to achieve their aspirations and their dreams and and understand that no matter what trials and tribulations you may encounter, no matter what uh, obstacles you may endure, in the end, we all go through it and nothing worth having is supposed to come easy. Uh, but ultimately, the, the culminating point is 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 reaching that peak where you know what no matter how hard you had to scratch and claw and bleed and go through emotional turmoil and things of that nature you still can come out on top if you've got a plan if you're focused you persevere um and you put in the work you promised your mom you wouldn't write the book till she passed away in 2017 she she tragically passed away for you obviously a tremendous influence how come she didn't want you to write a book until she was gone she didn't want me to um she didn't want to be alive when I was talking about my father, she knew that any book that I wrote, um, it wasn't going to be a sports book. And in all likelihood, it was going to be a memoir. Memoirs about myself. Um, and in the process of talking about myself and my experiences, knowing that I would celebrate her because we were very, very close. She knew that inevitably to celebrate her, I would have to talk about her trials and tribulations. And when it came to that, that directly was related to my father. And so knowing that she did not want to be alive uh, at that time when that kind of information got out about how she was treated, what she had to endure and overcome in order to take away, of, uh, take care rather of her six children. She knew that. And my mother was extremely private. She didn't want anybody knowing her business. She didn't want anybody talking about her business. Not while she was alive. She knew it was my life. It was my business. I had my own experiences with him, but she knew what she meant to me. And she knew what challenges I faced with him because of his treatment of her. And as a result of that, she knew where I would go. And she did not want to be alive when that happened. You've been very candid. If I was going to take a set of words that I would, not, I'm not a shrink or anything, but just 
following you and following your career and understanding people, if there's a set of words that I would say has probably driven you, it's overhearing your father in the kitchen say, the boy just ain't smart. He's not going anywhere. Except it. said that to your mother, you overheard that. And that's after you'd been left back a couple of times. Uh, that, that's the kind of stuff, that's the shit that just stays with you. And, and is it fair to say that that has been a, a ringing voice in your head ever since? Yeah, absolutely. Um, to be fourth, to be in the fourth grade. I mean, I, I, when I got left back in the third grade, I was promoted to the fourth grade at the end of the summer. So it was as if I didn't get left back. And then I went to the fourth grade and got left back that complete year. Uh, I had to repeat the fourth grade. And that June, when they announced that I was getting left back for the second consecutive June, um, to hear your father say that to your mother, I think that I, um, I mentioned it in the book, but to say it, I guess, might hit people a little bit more profoundly. It's bad enough to hear him say what he said uh, because it's clear he doesn't believe in you, doesn't have faith in you. Uh, you know, when you think about being a legacy for your father or whatever the case may be, it's clear that's not how he viewed me, how what he looked at me as, et cetera, at least at that time. But it's, it's bad enough for that to happen. What's even worse is when you see him trying to convince your mother to feel the same way. And and that, and that was what that was where it really stung. Thank God my mother didn't listen. Thank God my mother wasn't going for that at all. Um, but of course, it stayed with me and it, and it elevated my level of motivation, uh, hard work, dedication, um, trying to be the best that I could be at whatever I chose to do. All of those things come into play. And and I will honestly tell you, there is not a day, a month or a year in my life that has gone by where I did not remember what he said about me. Um, and I viewed it as him trying to finish me off. That's how I took it. Whether that was accurate or not is for, is for, is for him to say, which he obviously can't because he passed away in 2018. Um, but it was like he was trying to finish me off. He was trying to end you know, my life in terms of my dreams, my aspirations, my hopes, he didn't believe. And that elevated my level of focus and made me determined to prove him wrong and to prove anybody wrong that ever thought about me like I felt he thought about me. I love in the book when you talk about writing, not, not right after, very close after, maybe a few days after that, your mother took you to see Greece in the yeah. movies and, and how... Now to somebody listening, okay, great, Mom took me to see movies, but how unusual and special that was. Well, she worked 16 hours a day, seven days a week with one week's vacation. She didn't have any time to go to any movies or anything like that. But this particular day in the aftermath of him saying what she said to me, uh, my mother a couple of days later, whenever it was, took me to see the movie. And I was like, why, what, what's going on? And she just looked me in my face and said, because I love you and I want you to know that. And you know, I, at the time, you know, it meant a lot, but you're not really, really embracing and grasping the magnitude of, of, of this need that she felt to do that. She felt clearly that not only was I somebody that was not believed in by my father, but she felt like I felt I wasn't loved. And so she made it a point to remind me of her love for me and how no matter what we go through, she's got me. And as long as she's got me, there's no dead end. There's no period to the sentence. I could keep moving on forward. And, and that's how I took it. I've always said if you need one great parent. I actually think sometimes it's better to have one great parent than two mediocre parents. Yeah. You, certainly, <laughs> you certainly had one great one. Just one other story from that time that I just, I, my stomach hurts just thinking about it. You're 10 years old and your mom takes you down the street to, because uh, your father would go to work. He, was, he ran a hardware store and then sometimes wouldn't come home for days. Yeah. And then one day she said, I'd take you down to your uh, to his, your uncle's house. Yeah. Talk to us talk to us about because I, I, I can't imagine. I had the opposite kind of father. I had the greatest dad in the world. So I can't imagine this kind of stuff. So just take us through it. Listen, people have problems with their relationships and what have you. My father was, uh, you know, you know, he had an adulterous affair. There's no other way around it. And his mistress was around the corner with him. Um, and apparently my mother knew it and she knew he wouldn't have opened the door for him. So um, she took me around the corner of my Uncle Freddie's house and asked me to knock on the door. I had no idea why at that particular moment in time. My father comes, he opens the door. He says, what do you want? He doesn't see my mother. She comes out of nowhere. She busts through the door and gets past him. 
and goes straight to the mistress to attack her. I never saw my mother like that in my life before or since. Uh, but there was a level of fury inside of my mother that I never witnessed. And my mother went after that woman and grabbed a chair and was gonna, gonna hit her with it. And the woman had an infant child in her arms and she put the child up as a shield. And at that time, my mother obviously paused because she, you know, no matter how enraged she was, she knew that an innocent child shouldn't, didn't deserve to be victimized. And so she stopped herself. And in that split second, she stopped herself. My father grabbed her, snatched her up, grabbed me and put us both out the house and closed the door behind us and never answered it again that night. And so what I remember, despite those details, what really, really resonated with me was when he threw out the house, you saw people on the block, you know, you got nosy neighbors and stuff like sure, that. And I don't say, and I don't say that in a negative way, you know, your stuff's going on in your neighborhood. You're going to look. And my mother, the private quiet one who never wanted anybody knowing her business was literally banging on the door, screaming my father's name. And he never answered. And that was the moment that stuck with me because it's like, you know, it's not like he took her out the house and came with us and took us back home or anything like that. He just shoved us out. And um, I knew from that point forward that, you know, this was a bad situation. Um, I knew a lot about his character at that particular moment in time that I had not known before. And and I knew what devastation looked like to a woman because of what my mother endured. And I never forgot it. And it always stayed with me. So you have, you have two daughters. Yeah. Uh, how much to the table? You, I, 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 I've got to believe that you're about as opposite a father as you had. Talk to me about your relationship with your daughters. Oh my goodness, it's scary. Um, <clears throat> it is scary. I got three daughters. <laughs> I, I would tell, yeah. So you would know. I, I would tell you that it's very, very scary for me because um, I never knew love like this before. Um, you know, I, I knew that. I would make any sacrifice necessary for my mother to protect my mother, et cetera. But that was out of love with my daughters. It's love and obligation mm -hmm. because they're my responsibility. But you felt the responsibility with your mom also. I'm sure. I did. I did. I did. But in a different kind of way, it was more defensive. It was like, yeah. how dare anybody, even my father do this to her. Um, with my daughter, I mean, it's obligation, it's emotional, it's spiritual, it's soulful, plus it's legal, you know, it's all those different things, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's a and, job, um, it's also it's, a job, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's no question. And so to, to have two daughters and to know what I've endured, you know, the first order of business is to always make sure they're taken care of, to exhaust every means and measure to make sure that their quality of life is what it's supposed to be. And it stays that way. So I was, I'm the complete opposite in that regard to my father. But what's foreign to me is the fear that I walk around with. I'm never at peace because I'm always worried about him. Always, you know, because the crazy world that we live in, the way people can be, the way people can act, you're just scared to death. You wake up, the, the love, the profound love that you feel for them is the plus. The minus is also that profound love because that love that you feel for them has you worried about everything. Did they eat right? How they feel in the day? They get their homework done. They get to school in time. They get home from school on time. Did they do this? Did they do this? Did they do that? And it's a constant, constant, constant barrage of questions and inquiry that you have. And it's even when you're with them. You know, I go pick them up from school sometimes and it's like, how you doing? And I'm asking them questions. They're like, dad, yeah. you know, <laughs> come on. You know, yeah, I answered yeah, the question. Yeah. I'm like, but I asked yeah. another one. But well, how many questions are you going to ask? I yeah. mean, you know, I was in school, school, school. I did my, I got homework to do. I'm going to do that. And then that's it. You know, what's the big deal? You know, so it, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. And me being a guy that I'm never known to be where, you know, I'm, I'm settled down and it's like, you know, I'm just locked in and, they're my priority. I mean, stuff about me doesn't even matter. I don't have a desire to party. I don't have a desire to go out. I don't have a desire to do a lot of things because my first priority is to make sure they're good. And as long as they're good, then I exhale and lean back and relax, but not before.
move to just kind of your what you do for a living. You got you got a big voice today, uh, and I've just why as a guy in the media, uh, as a guy who's a big sports fan, as a guy who follows you, um, the voice keeps getting bigger and bigger and more important in our culture. Uh, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. It just it just is. You you sit at the cross section of sports and politics and culture and all the things that you you know better than anybody. You feel a big responsibility. Of course I do. Um, and it's a challenge, uh, to be quite honest with you, because when you're a black man, listen, I've had friends that I love dearly, that I have incredible admiration for, and my relationship with them is suspect because they feel it may give them a license. Uh, I, they have carte blanche to tell me what they feel, but you don't get to make me agree with you. I, I, I decide what I feel. I decide what I believe. I decide what my thought process is, why I've come to be that way and how I'm going to operate accordingly. And a lot of times when you sit in my chair, there's an expectation uh, as a black man on the public airwaves. It's incredibly important that white folks understand something. And I've said this on many occasions publicly. You all come to work with a job to do every day. I come to work with a responsibility. And what I mean by that is that my community comes. So your first responsibility is interesting. You answered that question. Starts with race. Starts with, with, with your your identity right there. That's where you're- To some degree. To some yeah. degree. I mean, it's debatable whether it's first, but if it's this, if there's one, it's 1A. It's right yeah, there. Right, it's right, right, right there. Right. You know, and, and, and what I mean by that is that the community is coming at you, Donnie, and they're like, you got to say this. You got to say that. You got to feel this way. You got to address this and that. I was expected to address Trayvon Martin when it happened. It wasn't a sports story. They don't yeah. care. You know, there's other things that's happened. It's not a sports story. They don't care. You know, and so you have that. And I'm one of those people. I feel an inherent responsibility to make sure that I give a voice to the voiceless, meaning that if you are, for example, the black community and you think this issue needs to be publicized and addressed, I feel that obligation. Where the period comes in, where the stop side comes in, is I don't feel an obligation to agree with you. To say to the masses, this is what folks are feeling, that's my obligation. But what I feel about it is my decision. And sometimes that's not aligned with my community. Most times it is, but sometimes it's not. And when that transpires, there's a level of friction that comes into play. I'm a businessman, for example. Um, I pay attention to who I represent. To me, when ESPN has an issue or Walt Disney has an issue and they're saying, okay, you could do that, but this is affecting our bottom line. I have an obligation to pay attention to that. Sure. And make a decision with that in mind because I'm not representing just myself. I'm representing a brand. And I have an obligation that if I'm getting a check from the brand, at least be mindful and cognizant of what that brand would like. So when I do whatever it is that I do, I'm not oblivious to it. Some people don't give it a second thought. I'm one of those dudes who does because that's business. No matter where you go, no matter where you turn to, when you're representing someone more than just yourself, you have an obligation to at least be mindful and cognizant of what matters to them before you articulate the perspectives and make the decisions that you may make. I'm a believer in that. A lot of times when things happen in our society, you have communities that don't give a damn about that. They just want you to parrot what their feelings and their dialogue may be. And that's not something I always capitulate to. What's interesting, when you were talking about yourself in the first 10, 15 minutes of the interview, I don't want to say you subdued, but you weren't your normal animated self. As soon as I asked you about your responsibility, I told you about others and how you affect others, your your energy level, you, 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 it, you, you went into this place that is, it is the essence of you. For you, so much, it, what's so interesting is you're such a huge individual presence, but your essence, and the book is about this, and what you feel your, your role in the media is, is how you affect others and the others and not yourself. And that's when you got animated. Well, I, I don't know how to explain it. I mean, you know, my, my, my colleagues and them always say, you know, they've seen me operate on two hours sleep. They've seen me work ridiculous hours. They've seen me do a lot of things. And then they say, 
But when the lights come on, this brother's something else. Yeah. And so that's what they've always said about me. And that's where I'm at. When I'm talking about me, when I'm talking about my life, meaning my personal life, like you were asking about earlier, that's a different thing because it's reflective. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm recalling, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the actual experiences that I've had, um, the lives that were affected by those decisions, uh, that involved my life and that of others in my inner circle, whether it be my, my four older sisters, my mom, my 15 nieces and nephews or whomever. I'm thinking about all of those things and I'm being very reflective and introspective. When I'm talking about my career, it's like it's active. Like yeah. it's like I'm in the moment. It, it's it's like the difference to use a sports analogy between somebody that wins a championship and is talking about what it was like at that particular moment when it when they were trying to win it. Between the difference between that and somebody that's shooting for a championship and talking about what they're going through right now. And so that's the only that's the best way that I can explain it for you. And, you know, one is reflective and one is in the moment and it's very present and it's very constant. And when you ask me about my career and how I can be and how I am and where I am today, it's in the here and now. There's nothing to be reflective about, really. It's about boom. This is on. Let's go. It's now. ESPN has done a dance over the years with politics. You know, all of a sudden at, at one point in time, everybody got very, very political and the ratings start to suffer. Yeah. And kind of, you went back, went back to, uh, let's stick with sports. Yet you as a personality have gone so beyond that. One of the reasons you're doing, your no mercy podcast. Yep. It's funny. You got, you went on the view this week. You talked about the, the perils of Donald Trump that we can both agree on. We could do six hours on that. Um, <laughs> Which just I the most ridiculous. dangerous human being. Yeah, I mean the fact. What's really ridiculous is that after four years, forty percent of this country raised their hand and said yes, we'll take four more. We'd like him again. That's what's stunning about it. And still today, and we, we could spend obviously seventeen shows on it. So where where do you and you've talked about also your aspirations, everything from you'd run for president to taking over Jimmy Kimmel's group. I get the feeling that staying on ESPN is going to be too small for you. I don't know how to say that's the wrong words, but I say that that in order for you to kind of really do what you want with no blinders on, with no guardrails on, you're going to have to find I don't want to say a bigger stage, a broader stage. So, for instance, if I was at CNN and I came mm -hmm. to you when your contract's up in two and a half years and said we're going to give you the nine o'clock spot and you do with it what you want, that that would be something that would be where you really want to be at the end of the day? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't say that I'd want to be someplace more than ESPN. I love ESPN. I, I, love, know, working I, know, ESPN. I, I love working for ESPN. The problem with the biggest problem with ESPN is as it pertains to me, Donnie, is not that I want to be at CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or something like that. The biggest problem ESPN has is that I want to be at Disney. You know, I yeah. have an aspiration to produce scripted and unscripted content in television and film. I have an aspiration to do late night. I have an aspiration to, to, to make some noise and to extend beyond the realms of sports to do other things like this podcast. No mercy. That's the issue. You know, and, and it's not like it's a bad thing. You know, for it's not me, bad thing at all. No. For me, when I look at at ESPN, it's like the, the 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 parameters under which they'd like me to work. Like, in other words, watch yourself. Be careful. These guardrails. That doesn't affect me. It's the obstacles that affect me. In other words, you telling me I need to be guarded is entirely different than telling me I can't. Yeah. That's what it gets. Now, that's when it gets thick because I've got two and a half years left on my deal. I'm incredibly happy at, at being a part of the worldwide leader. Uh, it's done immense, uh, an immense amount of things for my life and my livelihood. And for me, I'm eternally grateful. I'm not tired of being in sports. I love it. It's a part of me. I never want to let it go. It's just that I don't want that to be all that I'm about. Mm -hmm. And so for me, as long as that's understood, I'm fine. We could work out deals and I could retire there. But if they said to me, we don't want you doing anything else of course. but this, then I've got two and a half years left and my career will be elsewhere. That's how I view it. A lot of your shows uh, over the years is, is conflict is, is one of the essences of it. I mean, it's just, and you said something that really kind of took me. You said, to be candid, 
he said, we capitalize on the kind of polarization people supposedly abhor. And yep. one, of, one of the obvious, and I, I, sometimes I laugh, you guys are go, going so crazy at each other and it's, it's sports, but you, so on the one hand, we have this societal problem right now that we are so polarized and we are so divided more so mm -hmm. than ever. And that's it. Yet that's so much of what you do. Do you ever say to yourself, wait a second, how do I, how do I do good TV yet at the same time, not be this, uh, not be walking right into what is kind of the essence of our problems. And you guys are just fighting about sports. You're not fighting about other stuff, but yet it's still about the fight. It's still about polarization. I'm on one side. You're on the other side. Watch. But I do it every day, Donnie. And so to me, I don't have to stop and think about anything. It's an active part of my life. And how do I combat that? Because we're having a conversation. We're debating about the top topics in a heated fashion. We're also laughing. We're also right. cracking jokes. Yeah. Uh -huh. We're also uh -huh. hugging one another. Uh -huh. You know what I'm saying? There it is. And, there and, it is. And, yeah. and going from segment to segment to segment because I'm making sure on every show that while we're doing that on first take, we're letting the audience know we're having a good time. It's the entertainment and sports programming network, in this case, that you're talking about here. We have a people with a potpourri of views and viewpoints and perspectives. So what? It's no big deal. The, the whole point of it is that we respect one another, but we're going at one another is expressing our viewpoint and may the best man and woman win. Yeah. It's really that simple. Politics is different. You're messing with people's lives. You're very serious about it. You're antagonistic. You're insulting. You're insidious. You're divisive. You're all of these things. And while doing so, you have the audacity to be liars talking to the American people about one perspective or another just to curry votes. And then you go up on Capitol Hill and you contribute to the divisiveness in this world, but you don't want to live under those same rules yourself. If you are talking trash, how in God's name, Donnie, are we supposed to, all right, border security, the economy, uh, the, 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 the federal deficit, um, the list goes on and on. How are you supposed to sit up there and say, you know what, if I'm a Republican, it's their fault. They don't know what the hell they're doing. All they care about is this woke culture. All they care about is getting what they want. They're corrupt. They're liars. They're this, they're that. And the Democrats, these guys, they want to take you back to the days of pre-civil rights. They want to keep you in chains. They want to do this. They want to do that, blah, blah, blah. But then you're going to go to the negotiating table and talk with each other. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't work. That's not how the real world works. You've been a businessman a hell of a lot longer than me. I'm just learning to be a businessman for crying out loud for, for <laughs> years. You've been a businessman for years. Tell me where that works. We all know better. It we does, all know way, better. Not they do it. Not only does it not work, 90% of us live in what I call a wardrobe of purple. You yourself, you're a fiscal conservative. You're, you're, a, you're a hawk, a security hawk. Like I'm the same way. I'm progressive on all social issues. That's where yes. most of us live. And yet, yes. for some reason, we can't, they don't fucking get it. It's just, it's they, they, just. They try to convince us. They try to convince us we have to take both sides. I started out this podcast one time. I think it was my first or second week doing a podcast. I, they, they try to sit up there and say, you're for, you're, you're pro, you're pro right. You're, you're, you're pro rights or you're not, you know, you're pro life rather. I'm sorry. Or you're not. I said, no, the hell I'm not. I am a man who does not support abortion, but I support a woman's right to choose. Mm -hmm. Who the hell are you to tell me? I can't be both yeah. in my life. I'm telling you, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with an abortion, aborting a child. But I am not going to sit at a look at look a woman in the face and tell her I have a right to make that choice for her. That is her choice. I am all for legal immigration. Am I against illegal immigration? Yes. But am I a proponent of keeping children separated from their parents? Are, are, are locked in tents for crying out loud for months upon months at a time? No, I am not. Oh, do you got to pick one or the other? No, I do not. It's your job on ta on Capitol Hill to figure out a damn way to maneuver us through this terrain so we don't have this level of division in our country. But we've gotten to a point where the politicians have gotten away with, uh, uh, you know, obviously, figuratively speaking, they've got a, they've gotten away with murder because what happens is, is that Donnie, 
They don't have to work. That is the ultimate crime. You have to campaign. But once you campaign, do you realize, Donnie, you don't have to read a bill? All you have to do, if you're a Republican, side with the Republicans. If you're a Democrat, side with the Democrats. That's it. You don't even have to read the bills. You don't have to work because the sides are so divisive. They're so divided that whether it's Mitch McConnell or before it was Nancy Pelosi, you know, and, 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 and now you're just looking at it and you're just saying you don't have to work. And that's the problem. They don't have to negotiate. All they have to do is stand firm. And the work is all in making sure we're a united front. That's it. That is a disservice to the American people. And I hate it because I ain't trying to run for office. I don't want to. I'm I'm not a politician. I never wanted to be. But I did mean it when I say if the American people stood up and said, we want you to be president of the United States. And I thought there was a snowball's chance in hell I could win. I'd actually do it because I'm telling you this right now. I do it just for the purposes of the debates. So I could be in front of these people who lie, who don't care about the American people nearly as much as they should. They use us as pawns. They don't handle their business. They don't negotiate with one another and work together. And I'd use it as an opportunity to call every single one of their asses out, every one of them. And I'd pick them apart because this is the nonsense that cannot continue. That's what I'm talking about. Where you live, and it's interesting, it's just called common sense politics. I mean, the way you articulated abortion, the way you took abortion, you said, look, look, it's not something in my life. But of course it's your right to choose. Or of course I want legal, I want immigration. I don't want illegal immigration, but even when it comes to legal immigration, I don't want kids separated from their parents. I mean, it's right. just common sense politics. And I, right. I, I, I don't, unfortunately, I don't want to go too deep in politics. The electoral college keeps us from that because in order for someone to win a primary, they've got to go all the way over on one side of the and what the world lives in the middle and we live in the middle we live in common sense middle. So I, I would support you running for president by one day, my friend. It's, the, it's uh, the fringes. It's the fringes that we have to worry about on both sides. I mean, you know, like, for example, I, I got to admit to you, I kind of liked Ron DeSantis until recently when you're, you, when you're making an issue of African-American studies being taught in Florida schools. What the hell are you doing? I mean, I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. He's and, a but, scary guy. He's a I scary mean, guy. So, 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 he's I didn't like it. He's Trump in better like clothes. I'm telling you, he's a scary guy. That's and I think that's a little that's a little insight in that's what's right. at that guy's core. So well, that's what I, I love these people who go, Oh, DeSantis is a good guy. He's got the no. same fucking evil tendencies that Donald Trump has. He's just packaged much. Better. I don't so, I don't know that. about I don't know about him the way that you do. So I'm not gonna say all of that. All I'm going to say is that as a black man, when you as a white individual is trying to tell black people in the state of Florida that they don't need to learn about their history because that's ultimately what it comes down to. That is incredibly insulting, incredibly insulting. Now, on the other hand, you also have folks like, listen, you and I both agree we're socially liberals. All Mm -hmm. right. Live and let live and stuff like that. But then there are things that get a bit extreme. And with our woke culture that we're living in, stuff is just completely overblown and all of this stuff. And then you got to watch every little thing. And it's it's like it gets to a point where you understand that they don't understand they're feeding the extreme on the other side and pulling folks from the center to the right because of how extreme you are on the left. There does come a point in time on both fringes where you're asking like enough's enough. And what we got to do as a society is get back to the center. Ignore the 7% of the fringes on the left, the 6 to 7% of the fringes on the right. Okay, that's about 13 to 14%. Focus on the 86% that know how to act like they've got some damn sense. That's what I think we have to get to as a society. And I don't know if we can. I really don't. I mean, you got caught up in the walk. First of all, you, you were very honest in your book about some of the controversies. The most recent one, I found a joke. The fact that you couldn't say Rihanna... Is amazing, but yet Beyonce is still my favorite. I, I wanted to scream. I'm like, what? And what they, the woke side, what they don't understand is they set themselves back with that. That's not what they're like. I, 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 and that you had to kind of explain yourself. You're allowed to say you, you think Kobe's better than LeBron. Doesn't mean you don't think, you know. I think, I think that I may have lost a couple of friends over that issue. And I won't say their names, but they came at me in such a way that 
it just let me say that that they're really not my friends. They don't really give a damn about me because they reacted so 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 vehemently about the whole Rihanna Beyonce thing. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, I specific, I didn't say Rihanna was trash. She can't perform. She's not a great artist. She's a multi-billionaire, probably a billionaire at this point. She's phenomenal. I know that. But I'm a Beyonce dude. I think that as a detain as an entertainer, Beyonce is phenomenal. I loved Prince. I loved Michael Jackson more. I loved Teddy Pendergrass. Um, I'm sorry, love. Luther Vandross. I love Teddy Bendergrass more. You know, I, I, I'm sitting there. I like, you know, the groups like 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 YouTube and stuff. I like Coldplay. I used to like Phil Collins back in the day. Right. I'm a Jay's. Listen, I'm a Nas fan. I love LL Cool J. I think he's phenomenal. I think Nas is the truth. I think Eminem is off the chain. But I'm a Jay Z guy. You know, I mean, it's like I, I'm just sitting here. Like, wait a minute. When did we get away from this? And then on top of it all. With that particular show, Sherry Shepard's team, because that's the show it all happened mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. She's done a phenomenal job. They're picking up the second two more seasons for her show. I'm very happy for her. She's a good person. Love her to death. Sherry Shepard and her team come into me and they said, we want to do this show like it's a debate format. So we're going to pepper you with questions, but we're going to look for the debate. Yeah. So I said, cool, no yeah. problem. Yeah. So when I went out there, and they brought up Beyonce, Rihanna. I'm thinking debate because that's what I do for a sure, living. Sure. And they brought up Rihanna. And I came up with Beyonce. But you would have thought yeah, that I, I mean, called Rihanna everything but the child of God. And the fact that people could react like that, I said, we have really lost it. And by the way, and then you got, you got some, a couple of black women out there that were like, he's pitting two black women against one another. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, really? It, you, yeah. You've got to be kidding me. This is where we're going because I said I'm more of a Beyonce fan. That's where we're going in our culture. Well, am I pitting two black men together when I talk about Steph Curry or LeBron James? Right. You know, how about Russell Westbrook or, 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 or Steph Curry? How about Damian Lillard or Steph Curry? I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah. This is where we are. And it's, and, and I will tell you that, get somewhat scary we're gonna get to a point where no one's gonna tell the truth no you, said that you, you always say that you're always terrified of being canceled you're like one minute away it's always on your mind i think you have a brand now a lot like howard stern in a different way where i think you're bulletproof i think because you've established who you are and you are both sides kind of guy and your brand is i don't want to say controversy but kind of rubbing things if you will now obviously you can't Go out and say horrific things, but I, I, I think you're. I think you've built a really strong. I don't want to say bulletproof brand, but as bulletproof as it could be in the media today, and that's just your body of work. Well, I will tell you this. <clears throat> I'm glad you said that. I appreciate that because I ain't changing. This is who the hell I am. You know, I, 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 I believe that I'm a human being, and what I mean by that is that. I know that I'm decent at my core. I know how my mother raised me. I know that I don't intend to hurt people and stuff like that. I'm not a vicious person. Um, I don't have malice in my heart towards other human beings. You ask me a question, I answer it. I try to be as respectful as I possibly can. But as my mother taught me to do, have someone listen to your truth or have to deal with your truth and you have to deal with your lies. And so for me, it's like if you ask me a question, uh, of course, I'm going to take into account the seriousness and severity of, this, uh, of, of, of the subject that you're probing with me. But at the end of the day, I'm still going to try to give you as close to the truth as I can possibly get with any issue that I choose to tackle, because that's just my way. And the people that are in my life who love me, uh, who respect me, who cherish me. Uh, if they can appreciate that, that's fine. And the people who can't and don't want that, don't be a part of my life. I've got enough friends, family, and loved ones. Um, I'm okay, and I'll be okay. I'm not trying to hurt anybody, but I don't think answering questions like that is hurtful. I don't think me saying Rihanna is a fabulous, sensational artist. By the way, she's got my money. I bought all her albums, but I bought all Beyonce's albums too, and I'm a bigger fan of Beyonce than I am of Rihanna. I don't believe that's a crime. 
And for people in today's woke culture that tried to turn it into that, my advice to them is get a life, get something better to do. Yeah. There's a lot of more significant things. You and I just finished talking about stuff going on on Capitol Hill. That's far more important than this kind of nonsensical drivel that we've got to spend minutes on discussing. Two, two last subjects that are going to be a lot more fun to talk about. It's, it's no coincidence that you found the Dallas Cowboys as a lightning rod in yeah. that you have a whole chapter in the book because there's something you understand that as soon as you say Dallas Cowboys – People's blood's gonna go one way or the other. It's just one of those things. It's just, it's just, it's one of those things. I'm with you on the Cowboys. I can't stand the Cowboys. I know you like Jerry Jones. I can't stand Jerry Jones. I, 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 I you defended him actually with the whole 1957 thing. Yeah. Uh, and also, because it was 1957, yeah, 66 years, years ago. Yeah, yeah. and you, a still photo. Wasn't so, a video. It was a still photo. But go how, ahead. How did you find your way to the Cowboys? To to understanding or to like being so such a cowboy agitator it's just like i i get such pleasure watching you in your hat with your cigar call them out what is it about the fucking cowboys that i just want to puke every time i see them um they never take a second to smell their own stench they can go one in 15 this season could end on january 5th at 7 p.m by 7 15 they're gonna tell you you know we're gonna win the super bowl next year right this is who they are. They can't help it. The, the sun is always shining. It's always uh, an aberration. Uh, 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 it's like no matter how normal losing and coming up short is for them, they literally walk around like they're champions. Like it, 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 or with Dallas Cowboy fans, they're the champions. Y'all just don't know it. We just don't know it. They yeah. are really the champions. We yeah. just don't know it yet. They're the champions in the back page. They're the champions with the cheerleaders. They got the best stadium in the business, even though I think SoFi is better now. They've yeah. got that going on. Uh, you know, they got a great owner in Jerry Jones because he is a marketing genius. There's no yeah. doubt about that. Sure. All of this stuff is true. And, and that's how they feel. But for me personally, it's all fun. You know, it's like it's sports and sports fans troll one another all the time. That's what we grew up doing, you know, so it's no big deal. It's all the fun. And I so appreciate Jerry. That's how Jerry and I became cool because Jerry got that. Jerry understood, sure. you know, that, like this is what it is. And you're, it's you're okay. good for, by the way, you're and, good for his brand. You're good for his brand. Listen, I mean, he told yeah. me that, Donnie. He's, yeah. The first time I met Jerry, he was like this. He said, you may say we suck. But you talking about They're my talking Cowboys. About absolutely, I'm absolutely. good, you know, and it, yeah. and we laughed about it, and it's and it's perfectly fine. It's all good, you know. Me personally, I'll, I'll break news with you here. I actually hope Jerry Jones wins a championship someday soon. I really do, you know. I, really? I, I want him, I want him to win a championship. You know, it's just that the, wow. the Dallas Cowboy fans are the ones that get on my damn nerve that make me change <laughs> my mind because they I, I'm thinking about how they will act, how obnoxious and nauseating they will be if they got to walk around and really as validate and, and be legitimized as champions. It would be a nightmare, but I would be happy for him. And I would be happy for the players like Marcus Parsons and Demarcus Lawrence and Trayvon Diggs and others. I don't root against the players. I just root against the fans because they get on my last damn nerves. It's just who they are. But the ratings, listen, Cowboy fans are everywhere. And no matter how great the great the ratings for first take are great no matter what. But it does go up another notch when it's the yeah. Cowboys. Yeah. It's just a fact. And I saw that. So I said, you know what? Since they're watching me anyway, I'm going to I'm going to troll them every chance I get. Cause I they just get on my nerves. They just get on my nerves. So the real reason I had you on the show, because I'm I'm a long suffering Nick fan. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I just, so am I, 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 well, I know that mm -hmm. I, I'm pained. And what pains me is that we're still so far from being good right now. There's kind of an assemblage. I mean, Randall's playing well and, and Brunson's having a great year, but there's still no core. Why in the center of the universe, I'm not here to slam ownership. We could probably go off on that for a while, but why, wh why this maddening, at best, dalliance with mediocrity. And we're still so far from good. We're so, there's nothing, there's, it's not like, yeah, I mean, we're a superstar way, but every team is a superstar way. What what goes wrong with the Knicks? What, why is it year after year, coach after coach, team after team, ever since the early 90s, we can't get it right? It starts with Dolan. Yeah. Um, 
He's a child born with a silver spoon on his mouth, born on third base, thought he had a home run, thought he had a triple. Um, the manner in which he has acted has been such an embarrassment to the Knicks organization. They can't get anyone to want to be a part of the yeah. organization. Yeah, that's a problem. Um, the reality is, is that when you see how they treat media, how petrified they are, how controlling they are, it feels like they don't get me wrong. They treat their players very well and they treat. Well, they don't treat their ex-players very well. I, mean, I was there the yeah, night they carried you. Barkley. They, 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 they have all of this stuff. That was a couple of years ago. But the point that I'm making to you is that they've got all of this going on. So that's a problem. But then what happens is he hires executives, giving them the license to mirror his behavior, not the obnoxious part. But in terms of a guy like Leon Rose, I've known Leon Rose for years, over 20 years. Mm -hmm. Leon Rose is a good man. He's a good man and very capable, was a very capable agent. And I'm certainly not questioning his basketball acumen. But you can't be Leon Rose, the president of basketball operations for the Knicks franchise. And you hide it from the media every yeah, day. He gives, one, done, gives one interview a year. Yeah, I mean, he gives one. And, and by the way, and it's to MSG. It's to the in-house network. Yeah, it's not to the public. That is the disgrace. Because what happens is, is that what you want to do is you want to distance yourself from the very public you're asking to patronize your yeah. your product. Yeah. That's just not smart business. And because it's Dolan combined with him and how they treat. Their employees, you know, the private jets and the best, you know, the most affluent things you can imagine. And they take care of them. Everybody follows suit. But what you're what you're minimizing is that you're allowing everyone to escape accountability for your actions. If you don't have to answer to anybody and you get to run away from everybody, where's the incentive to really press and push to be all you can be? It's not there because you're devoid of accountability. And nobody's picking up on that because they're getting paychecks, because they're living well, and they're hiding. When, and, and think about it. They're quick to talk about culture, culture, culture. We're building a culture here, which we're not averse to. I'm not averse to that, Donnie. I'm sure you're not. Here's the problem. When you're talking about building culture, you're asking us to trust you and that it's going to take time while you don't talk to anybody. That's what they do. And that's why the New York Knicks are going to be what they are. They'll be just good enough to tease you, just good enough to let you believe they're a respectable team. They're obviously exceptionally well coached by the great Tom Thibodeau. Mm -hmm. Then they'll get to the playoffs, and you'll find the talent ain't there compared to the others, and they'll go home in the first round. And you know what they'll say to you? Well, we made it to the playoffs. We're making progress. Give us more time so they can continue getting your money. This is what they do. It's what they do. What, what frightens me is and, and a lot of New Yorkers still live under the illusion that, oh, every player wants to come live in New York. I want to come play for New York. My concern is they don't. By the way, you, if you're John Morant, wherever you play is the show. I mean, it doesn't matter. Memphis, it's, it, we're, we're, it's nationally televised games. Uh, I, they don't. Nobody needs New York. Do the players not want to come play for Dolan? Well, listen. I mean, you know these guys. You're friends with these guys. Kevin, Kevin, Kevin Durant said it best. He said, it was whack. There was nothing intriguing about the New York Knicks. Now, I happen to believe and know that he was on his way to New York, but he changed his mind and ended up going to Brooklyn at the 11th hour after talking to Kyrie Irving. But the point that I'm making to you is that, you know, part of the appeal of Brooklyn, and that's not always the wisest decision either, was just doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. Play basketball, but doing your own thing where the New York Knicks seem to be very, very restrictive because they care about the business of MSG and all that it entails rather than just adapting to the times and understanding playing basketball for them is a different animal. And so you have to deal with all of those things. That's what comes with it. We all get it. Um, and I'll never stop rooting for them. I'm rooting for the Knicks. I'm rooting for Leon Rose. I'm rooting for William Wesley and, and everybody and Tom Thibodeau and all the players. I'll never root against the Knicks. But from an organizational perspective, I know for a fact people don't want to come and play with them. People don't want to come and play with them. And they'll say, well, look, we got a guy in Brunson. I will remind you, I'm very happy they got Jalen Brunson. He's a hell of a player, hell of a pickup, no doubt about it. But let me tell you a little story. Jalen Brunson was offered a little over $50 million to remain in Dallas. 
Why did he come to the Knicks? Because they, right. they gave him 103. Right. Okay, so they doubled up. So you got to overpay. That's number one. Number two, Jalen Brunson's father was Leon Rose's first client. And, 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 and so what happens? You bring him on the bench. Rick Brunson is a hell of a basketball mind. And I think he's going to be a damn good assistant coach for years to come in this game. And I'm happy that he's with the New York Knicks. Why the hell did you have to bring him on board one month before you got his son? Yeah. This is not Kentucky. This is not college. This is the NBA. And while you were recruiting him, why were you sitting behind the bench of a Dallas Maverick Utah series where you were looking at Donovan Mitchell and Jalen Brunson? Okay. Because you acting like this is college. This is the pros. You alienated Danny Ainge who said, I'll be damned. I'll go to hell first before I give Donovan Mitchell to the New York Knicks. So this star athlete, this star basketball player, who's exactly the number one option that the New York Knicks need, oh, yeah. is in a Cleveland Cavaliers uniform instead of the New York Knicks because you alienated an executive by putting by employing Bush League tactics. Not to mention that. But not only did you do that, but in the process of doing so, you weren't even on the phone with him, Leon Rose. He had an assistant, a consultant on the phone negotiating with, Dan with Danny Age on behalf of the New York Knicks instead of being on the phone his damn self. This is the stuff that happens with the New York Knicks that ain't happening with a bunch of people in the NBA, but it happens here in New York City. That's why the New York Knicks are decent, but when we talk about good and great, we don't talk about them that much because we always know there's at least four to five teams in the same damn conference that's better. All right, last last question. This is probably going to air next week, so the, the the games will have been played already. Give me your picks for this weekend for the, the two conference championships. I'm going to go with Philadelphia. I hear you. And Cincinnati. I hear you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I think Joe Burrow is that dude. I think Patrick oh, Mahomes is less than 100. percent Joe um, Burrow, think, man, he is listen. Brady. He is he is Montana. He is it, man. You just see it. Listen, you feel it. You smell it. San Francisco could win this thing, though. I'm go not for, ruling them out. I mean, yeah. they, 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 they're, they're special. But I would tell you that if I had to bet my money, I would be scared to death because I think it's going to be close. Um, I think it's a pick them both games, but I'd have to go with Philly and Cincy. All right. On that note, the new book, Stephen A. Smith, the best seller, New York Times bestseller from the kid from PS 134 in, in your house, Queens. The book is Straight Shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. It's number one on Amazon. I want to sell it one more time. If you love Steven and you love sports, you're going to love it. But if you're anybody, if you've got kids and you want to understand about reaching your dream and overcoming adversity, this is a book. It's a must, must read. Stephen A., I really appreciate your time, my friend. And thank you so much. It was always great. It's always great talking to you, Donnie. It's really good to see you. It's been a long time. Thank you so much.